Well, as you're grabbing your Bibles, we're in Matthew 17 this morning, as we've been going through our Matthew series. Uh, but before we get into that, I do want to say that uh, we also made some homemade ice cream for today's uh, barbecue, and it has been taste-tested by Brandon, our three-and-a-half-year-old. And he said the Oreo mint is excellent, so just to let you know that that is there. Well, we've been going through Matthew, and, and if you've been with us, you, you, you know, we're Matthew 16, we had the transfiguration and everything that's been going on, and, and uh, three of the disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, saw the glory of the Lord and kind of that, that idea of, uh, you know, Jesus kind of being between both worlds at that point on that top of the mountain, and them seeing Jesus glowing, and his, his, I mean, physically he was glowing and his clothes were glowing because of the purity that was there. And Jesus tells them, don't tell everybody about this because you won't understand it until later anyway. And then they come down the mountain and they're immediately confronted by this young kid or this father and this young kid that's possessed by a demon that literally is throwing him into the water, trying to kill him, throwing him on the fire. And if you know anybody has children or, or, or is an aunt or an uncle, anybody loves children, you understand how terrible that, could, uh, that feeling could be. And the other disciples were like, why couldn't we take out this demon? We tried to pray him out. It didn't work. And Jesus said, that's because you weren't fasting. You weren't praying enough. And we talked a little bit last week about fasting and what that was about. And and the Lord also allowing people to go through difficult things to draw them to him. And if you've ever seen somebody go through a difficult time, you know, a lot of times we're just like, we're we're either come from from two different thoughts. We're like, Lord, just lay off of them. They're going through enough. Or we're kind of thinking of, well, the devil's just attacking them. And sometimes it's God going, no, no, no. I'm allowing this stuff to happen in their life because I've tried everything else. So now I'm allowing some difficulty, hoping and praying like the father of the prodigal son that they're going to come back to me. They're going to draw back to me. So then we're into Matthew 17 right here, and we pick it up in verse 24. It says, After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the, uh, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? he asked. For whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or the others, or from others? From others, Peter answered. The sons are exempt. Jesus said to him, But so that we may not offend them, go, and th- uh, go to the lake and throw out a line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find four drop, uh, four drop my coin. Take it and give it to them for my taxes and yours." Now, you might remember that Matthew, the, the writer of this book, is a tax collector, former tax collector. He's the only uh, gospel, you know, he's the only gospel writer that actually gives us this story. And, you know, taxes would, that would be his background. So he would have been attracted to this story, and so he wrote it down. He, but he's also from Capernaum. So all the guys that are confronting Simon Peter were basically his old pals. You know, you, you work in an industry for a long time, you know all those. It's a small town uh, kind of atmosphere in Capernaum. We think Tulare's a small town. Tulare's a huge town compared to Capernaum and back then in, in those times of living. Uh, so Capernaum's not that large. So they go to Simon and they say to him, hey man, what's up? 
Why haven't you paid the tax? Our records show that you haven't paid the taxes. So, so uh, you know, your temple tax is, was half a, shekel, uh, half a shekel tax commanded by the Lord years earlier. And it wasn't, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't one the Jews were upset about paying. This temple tax, this particular tax, the Jews weren't going around going, I can't believe they're taxes. I can't believe they're not. This was something uh, they were pl- paying for a place to worship. Uh, to go to God, to get, seek atonement for God. Like we pay for our AC and our lights around here. You know, all of us should be doing something, or, or, or we are doing something, sweeping, mowing, uh, cleaning up, writing checks, and, and we should be doing it in an excited way. Not that we're out there on the morrow going, yeehaw, I'm glad I'm, you know, not, not that we're doing that, but we shouldn't be like, oh my, I can't believe I got to go do this today. You know, it's all about the attitude behind it. Uh, and, and I had to check my couple, uh, you know, a couple times I had to check my attitude about going out to the fireworks booth because I cannot stand the heat. If you come over to my house, you understand. Keep our AC down low. I put solar on my house so I could run my AC. You know what I'm saying, right? So being out there, well, you know, so I had to check my attitude. The same thing here is the attitude behind it. They were very proud of their temple in Jerusalem. In fact, it wasn't just for the Jews that lived in the area. Jews from around the world would collect and pay their tax, and it would be shipped back to Jerusalem to do, for the temple. Uh, all the Jews would chip in for this. Now, you also might remember that the Jews really had this hatred for the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and, and for many reasons. But one of the things that Pontius Pilate did, he actually raided the temple tax at one point. He went in there, and he stole the money. They were furious because he shouldn't have touched it. I know it's very hard for us to understand and, and, and to imagine politicians touching money that they shouldn't. I understand that. But on this particular day, they're in Capernaum. And Peter owns a home right there on the lake. The home is still there. It's a, it's a pretty cool place. So the tax collectors show up and they confront him. It's kind of interesting. They don't confront Jesus, but they go to Peter. Simon is kind of backed into a corner. He, he doesn't know the right answer, you know, but that's never stopped Simon before from giving the right answer. You know what I'm saying? You don't really know, but you just, you, you got to say something, so you, you just, you know, spit it right out. That's Simon. Uh, oh, wait, 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 wait. We, we pay the temple tax? No, 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 no. We, we may be behind, but we pay it. Don't worry, guys. We've been traveling. We've been out here. You know we just got back in town. We'll get to that. Here he goes again. We talked about this last week, you know, speaking for the Lord without permission. Uh, you know, we haven't studied something, but of course we're, we've got to answer that, right? You know, I've talked about, you know, being a, a Sunday school teacher or, or even a Christian for a non-Christian or, or being a pastor, you have to have the answer, right? And if you ever say, I don't know, <gasps> heaven forbid a pastor say, I don't know, let me look that up, you know? Because we're supposed to memorize all the scripture completely, one of, every little you know, every little dot, every little, you know, right? Absolutely not. You ask me off the top of my head, okay, who are the 12 disciples? I'd have to sit down and write it out and think about it. Okay, wait, no, no, he wasn't a disciple. He just hung around them. You know, see what I'm saying? Sometimes you have to look it up. But Peter, he's backed into a corner here. Instead of finding out, well, what do we do here, Lord? He just, spout, you know, spits it right out an interesting thing that happens here. When he gets back to Jesus, Jesus says, hey, Rocky, hey, Peter, come over here. I want to talk to you about something. 
He knows about the discussion. He knows what happened. He just knows. So Simon gets back, and, and Jesus says, you were talking about taxes, right? Yeah, yeah, Lord, I, I, I took care of that. I told him we're going to pay it. Well, Simon, when the king, or when a king of this world taxes something, do they also pay the tax? I mean, does the king pay? No. Who does? Everyone else. You and I. We pay the taxes, not the king. Does the king's family pay the tax? Well, most of the time, no, they don't. So what is Jesus saying here? Why should I have to pay the tax for the temple? For all those people who say that Jesus does not call himself God in the Bible, they're wrong. He does it over and over. And right here what he's saying is, I am God. I am from God. I am of God. I don't pay the tax. The tax actually gets paid to me to, to, you know, to take care of the temple where you guys worship, uh, worship me. It's a very interesting statement. If the Pharisees had been there, they would, have tried to, they would have wanted to crucify him right then and there for saying this. He's saying the temple is my palace. That's what he's saying. That I technically shouldn't have to pay taxes on the 35 acres there because everything in that 35 acres has to do with Jesus. Yes, it was planned and built by David and Solomon, or planned by David and built by Solomon. But this, you know, this is blasphemous for the Pharisees. They would have popped a vein right there. You know that vein that goes across the forehead when somebody gets really mad? That thing would have just been popping, you know? This is what happens in a few months' time from now. They get so mad, they actually do crucify him. But Jesus continues to remind his followers and anyone who listens that he is different than what they thought. He's not just a great rabbi. He is not just a great teacher. He is not just a great healer. He is not just a great prophet. He is the Son of God. He's also in his majesty. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. This is not just something he claims in the book of Revelation. He is claiming it right now. He doesn't have to pay the temple tax. Now, there's another reason we find in Exodus 30. Something interesting concerning the temple tax itself. If you go to Exodus 30, we'll, we'll go there in a second. But God tells Moses to tell the children of Israel that once a year, every male, every person that's in charge of their family would go and pay a temple tax. He tells them how much it's going to be. In fact, he even uses the word shekel, and back then they didn't even have the shekels yet. They didn't even know about it yet. And the temple wasn't even built when he commanded this. And in fact, he says in Exodus 30 here, Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. There is no plague, will, will, uh, then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 grams, or geras. The half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make an offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. 
receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it in the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for their lives. This tax is a very important tax. The word atonement here means what? means to purge or to cleanse or to wipe off or to cover, to tear down or, uh, like a barrier, to make reconciliation. Atonement is what every single person on this planet needs before the Lord. No matter what century they lived in, before Christ, during Christ, or after Christ, there is an atonement that needs to happen for our sins. Every single person needs it. It's required, except for one person. And who is that? Jesus. Jesus didn't need atonement. God's instructions were this. Part of your atonement is to pay the temple tax. This tax is tied to their atonement for their sin. But Jesus didn't need to be reconciled before God. He already was. He even tells his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Lord. If you understand me, you understand God of heaven. He's sitting there going, I don't need this atonement. So what does Jesus do? Well, instead of going out there and fighting about this and going, well, let me tell you about the nuances and all this, he doesn't want to start a big controversy. And so instead of creating that disturbance, an unnecessary argument, and offending someone, he's just going to pay it. So he goes, hey, Peter, walk over to that lake, which was really close to them right there. Put your line in the water and go do some fishing. You know, I love it when the Lord tells me this. Hey, Alan, just, just go out and do some fishing. You know, we, whatever, whatever you like to do, you know what I'm saying? Well, wouldn't you love it like that? I'm like, really? Okay, well, you know, and the Lord's like, there's something I want you to see today. So Simon goes out and he puts his line in the water. And the first fish that you catch, Simon... It's going to have a a coin in its mouth. Use that coin to pay your temple tax and my temple tax. What's he doing here? He's providing for Peter. But he's also picking up the slack for Peter because he opened his big mouth. He committed him and God to something that was unnecessary. But out of the Lord's graciousness, he says, okay, we'll, we'll pay it. Now, what I found is interesting is he made Peter go and work. Now, for us, fishing is not work. But for Simon, this was his job. This is what he used to do. I mean, he spent hours and hours out on that lake fishing. So whatever you work at, it'd be like the Lord telling you, you need to go back to work and pay for this. And, and grab that thing. I'm going to provide for you, but you've got to go work for it. Uh, you know, think of it like that. We actually have to break a sweat, get a blister on our hands, have a sore back, whatever it is. He expects Simon to participate in his provision. And, oh, you know, then he goes on here in, in chapter 18. He goes, at the time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And I love the greatest argument. I keep telling, uh, I have fun with Brandon all the time. I'm like, Brandon, you're the greatest. And he goes, no, Daddy, you're the greatest. And I've talked about if I ever want a compliment, I just go compliment my son because I know he's going to repeat it back to me, you know. I'm like, yes, I'm the greatest, you know. And we joke around about that. But they were having a discussion about who was the greatest of the disciples. 
I don't know if this went on to, are we greater than Moses or not, that, that you guys just saw up on the Mount of Transfiguration or not. You know, I don't know how far it went, but they were discussing this. You know, women, they're very subtle in their arguments about who are the greatest and I'm better than you. Men were a little more obvious, and that's what they're doing here. Peter would be like, well, who caught the fish? You know, who caught the, the, the coin in the fish's mouth yesterday? Leaving out that the Lord actually provided that fish and, and provided that coin there. I mean, just saying, just saying. If, if it's going to be one of the 12 of us, well, then, I mean, come on. Look at me, you know. And, and, and you know, just, just to let everybody, you guys know, I mean, Judas, I mean, I think he's going to get voted off the island here soon. You know what I mean? I mean, Mark tells us that Jesus said, what are you guys arguing about? Because he heard them arguing back on the road, and he knows what they're arguing about. You know, it's like a family on vacation. He touched me. He's on my side, you know, driving up to Oklahoma from Houston. I mean, we always fought four boys in the car. Uh, You know, I was smart enough to go, okay, the sun rises on this side. Okay, I want to be on that side of the car driving, and on the way home, I want to be on the other side. I thought like that, you know. A little manipulation there. My son's already learning manipulation. But this is what it is. It's like they're fighting on the trip. He took my thing. He looked at me wrong. This is when you wish they had their own car and they were old enough to drive, right? It says that they kept silent. So he sat down and called the twelve together and said this. And Mark wrote, he said this. If anyone wants to be first... He must be the very last and the servant of all. Now, see, our tendency is to get to the top of the pyramid, right? We don't like the bottom of the pyramids. Any, any pyramid thing, you know, a document that they're showing a pyramid, and you want to be at the top, right? You don't want to be at the bottom. Jesus says, no, you need to get to the bottom. Learn how to serve each other. Then Jesus uses himself for for an example. He says, I don't have to be here, but I am here, and I came to serve. This is how you guys are going to get where you need to be. He's teaching them about his own nature. He is saying, I'm going to teach you about the importance of serving, why you will want to, and what you will accomplish out of it. Now, this is the exact opposite of our human nature, right? We do not glorify serving. We talk about it in the church, but in reality, it's very hard for us sometimes to serve. You know, I, 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 you know it's almost the thought of, well, I made it through raising my own kids. I've paid my dues. Let the other parents serve in the nursery at this point. You, you, have you ever had those thoughts? You know, I mean, and no matter what size church you're ever in, you always have issues with, with nursery, and I mean, I, I went to a church of, of 10,000, they're like 20,000 now in Houston, and they're always needing more people to serve in nursery in different areas, okay? So don't think it's just a small church. Any church, you're always, you know, and you have those thoughts. You know, I made it through junior high without damage. Do I really need to help those kids? You know, I pay for the small things. Why should I do some of the small things at, at, at church? It's one thing to say serving. It's another thing to get into the nursery and change the diaper, right? You know, you know my son's out of the diaper stage, 
uh, you know, we keep one on him at night, and, you know, just in case he, he pees or whatever. But, but other than that, we don't have to go wipe the bottom anymore. Do I, do I want to go over the nursery and wipe the bottoms? Not necessarily. I mean, we're all there, right? You understand what I'm saying? We don't like serving when we're young, and we don't like it when we get older. We just don't like it. That's our human nature. The more we turn toward God, the more God starts changing that nature in us. So we're at all different, different levels in that. But when's the last time your, your, your kids got excited about doing chores? Joel, you're sitting there. When's the last time you got excited about chores, huh? Yeah, that's what I thought. My wife sent me this uh, text, and I get it out, see if I can read it here. While I was down at the fireworks booth, she said, uh, we swam, we did the slide, we did the swings. He wanted to get off the swings, and then I asked him later on if he wanted to swing again. He said, no, I want to go inside. I've already done all the chores I like. (laughs) I'm going to print that one out. We do not like chores. We bribe kids to finish their chores, don't we? Our work bribes us to do our work. It's called a paycheck. My three-year-old, he, Brandon does not like to pick up toys. He actually rolls his eyes when we ask him to pick up something. It's cute now. It won't be so cute later on. It's starting to get old already. But then you have multiple kids. Then you get the, why isn't he doing it? Why isn't she doing it? It's the same in the workforce, right? If you've worked at a place for, for long enough, you'll see employees who don't like to do the regular, the, the menial, the, 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 the normal labor stuff. And then they have to hire people who actually do your work. You know what I'm saying? It's because our system is set up the, the longer you work, the more education you actually have, the less work you actually have to do. You get more authority, but the less work you do. It's so kind of, we all understand that. Jesus comes in, he turns it upside down and says, if you're the leader, it's good for you to work. It's good for you to break sweat. It's good for you to get in there and do something. Jesus says the greatest is identified and developed through serving. Whoever wants to be the greatest needs to be the servant of all. All. I mean, all. All. Not just the fun people. Not just the people I like. Servants of all. And I looked up the word. Guess what it means? All. It means all. No loopholes. The word servant in the Greek is diakonos. It's where we get the word deacon. It means errand runner or table waiter. Or to tend to someone else's needs. Like a personal assistant. Wouldn't you love to have a personal assistant? You know, be like a movie star, just have a personal assistant. You go to, you go to a lot of other countries. And, um, in fact, a lot of missionaries do this. I have some friends that are missionaries in Kenya. And, and when they're there, they live there, and they have servants in their house. Because it's actually rude for them not to hire somebody to serve them in the house. And it's a way for them to provide to the economy and to the people around them and stuff. So they have these personal assistants. I'd lo- wouldn't we love that in America? 
Man, when you get up to a job where you have secretaries and personal assistants, again, you get to the top, you don't have to do the work, you just have them to do it, right? That's how our system is set up. Now, the servant, uh, uh, the, the servant usually follows commands. And for the first century Jew or Roman or, or Greek, following commands is not what you wanted to do. The highest you know, ideal was self-determination. And still in America, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The whole idea of self-determination, it's expressed in freedom or citizenship and, and ownership or autonomy. But a servant... They were inferior, not necessarily in education. A lot of times during that time, they they would be highly educated. You just happen to have the money, so you hire them. You bought someone paying off their debt or someone that was captured in battle. Basically, anybody could, could go into servanthood. Anybody could end up being enslaved. I get a lot of money. We're slave to credit cards, aren't we? We have to have our job to pay off the bills that we've already, that's, in a sense, slavery. Now, not American slavery. I'm not talking about that, okay? I'm not comparing the two. Please, understand me. But you could enter into slavery by saying, you know what? I want to help my family out in this big debt that they have, and, you know, that's my brother, and I really want to help him. I'm going to go into slavery for so many years, and I'm going to work for this guy for so many years, and I'm going to help pay off their debt. You could choose to go into slavery, and that's what a lot of people did. A lot of people said, I don't have a job. I need a job. If you provide a house for me, you provide a a place for me to live or money for me to live on, I will work for you for so many years. That's the type of slavery we're talking about here. Or you were captured in battle. My city came to your city. We, we you know, beat your city, so we take all the people back and we put them into slavery. That was the other type of slavery uh, there. But many of the servants went voluntarily into slavery. The type of servanthood we're talking about here. It's not a good thing to be a servant during this time. But Jesus is saying the ideal thing is to be a servant of a bunch of people. And we're like, well, Jesus, this is kind of backwards. This is kind of, aren't we supposed to be moving forward? I mean, a servant is all often inconvenienced, right? A servant is usually unappreciated, right? They're kind of invisible, right? Spending their time and energy working to free someone you know, else up or you know, have someone else to accomplish, help uh, you know, other people to accomplish something. Sometimes it's for a season, sometimes it's for a lifetime. But Jesus valued servanthood way more than we ever will. And he modeled it for us. Now he calls his followers to do the same. To choose serving over being served. To choose serving over trying to make it your way in this world. In serving, we really start to figure out who Jesus is and how he wants us to live. He is the only God in any religion that does this. Someone, you know, you hear this statement all the time. Well, aren't all religions the same? Your answer can be no. And we could, I mean, there's a big no there. Multiple reasons, but one of them is that Our God came and even went to the point of death to free us from our sin. That is true freedom. That is true freedom right there. The other religions, people serve the God. People sacrifice to the God. And our belief, the God sacrificed himself for the people. 
No wonder Christianity is so confusing to everyone. It's backwards to how we're raised. It's backwards to how we're ingrained and how the world feels. But it works. You will find that the thing that I'm talking about here will actually help you out at home when you serve each other, at the office, or in life in general. When the husband realizes it's not the wife's job to be his slave, or when the mom realizes that the children don't have to, okay, when the children realize that mom doesn't have to, you know, the other night I sat down with Brandon, he was being a little toot. I tell you, he was just one of those nights crying about going to bed and just, you know, one of the, he just, he wanted to be with us. He hates to go to bed just like any kid because he thinks that we're out there having a party, you know. We're like, we're exhausted. We're going to bed too. You don't understand, son. But he's just, you know, he was just being that way. And I sat him down and I had a little talk. I said, you know, Brandon, mom could be doing a lot of things right now, but she chose to play with you instead. And you need to understand that. His response, was, his response was, Mom does other things? You know, I'm trying to broaden his horizon for him to, to, I mean, he's three and a half, I understand that. You know, but I'm trying to get him to see the bigger picture that, that you know, he's starting to understand work. You know, I, when uh, Doris, uh, their kitchen's being remodeled and all that, so they were up here, that's who he stays with during the week for, for a few hours every day. And he, they were up here using the church for the week and, and, you know, I drop him off, and I play with him a little while out there, but I said, well, I have to go to work, and he's starting to understand the concept of, of work, and so he, you know, he tells me, he asks, well, can I work before I go to, to, to Doris's, and I'm like, well, what, what do you mean work? He goes, well, the piano, I need to come in and play the piano. That's his concept of work, you know, uh, but that whole concept, you know, it, it just, it's just funny, but I'm trying to get him to see the bigger picture here, but in business as well, when people start to serve and stop looking out for number one, the whole culture of the business can change. But this goes against our sinful, prideful nature because we are free, right? I almost got the Mel Gibson clip, freedom, and put it up, you know? But that was a whole other country. But especially in America, you know? Sometimes I wonder what we really think about serving and, and do we really understand what God means in serving? Because right now, in Iraq and Syria and Sudan and Nigeria and Egypt and many, I mean, and, and Kenya, many other countries, they're literally going in and grabbing people who say they're Christians and they're taking them out and they are shooting them. Do we understand what serving is? When, when they could go, no, I'm not a Christian, I'm Muslim. Okay, well, the next door. Let me go to the next door. And they're saying, no, I'm stand up for what I believe in. I'm a Christian. And they're taking them out, and they're shooting them. It just happened. Sudan went into Kenya. Read about it this morning. Systematically killing them for saying they're a Christian. Yet here in America, where we have, free, you know, we have freedom, we too often hide the fact that we're Christians. Because heaven forbid somebody started a blog about us. Heaven forbid somebody started attacking us on our Facebook page because we say we're a Christian. Even had a, a cousin that just, uh, the whole Hobby Lobby thing, you know, they just flipped out because people are just spewing hate now. Because, you know, if you say you're for Hobby Lobby, apparently you hate every woman in this, in this world, right? 
If you go, well, I'm not going to go into that. But I'm just saying, we, we just get all upset about every little thing. Being a Christ-like servant requires growing humility. Something our world does not like. Jesus is like, I got three months left with you guys. And you're having the discussion about who's the greatest in the kingdom? Are you not listening to me? Have you not been hearing what I've been saying to you? Oh, sorry, Lord, Peter started it. You see, humility is not an act. It's developed over time by allowing Christ to permeate our life, to to take over our life. It comes through serving others. Like recognizing, yes, somebody else should have cleaned the bathroom in my house. Or yes, somebody else should have done this, but I'll do it. Somebody else should have and then put in whatever you hate to do, but then getting off your hind end and actually doing it. Serving teaches us things about God that we will never learn any other way because we start living out His character in this life. And we're doing it without looking like it's someone else's job. A truly humble person follows Jesus' example in this life and they start serving other people. They start looking out to other people's interests. They start paying attention to other people. When's the last time we've really, truly paid attention to another person? Hmm. We're so good at looking out for ourselves and manipulating things our way. Like I said, Brandon already knows how to do this. He gets that puppy dog look in his eyes. Cocks his head, looks up at you, and your heart starts melting. Lisa's heart more than mine. I look at him and say, no, 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 you're not getting away with it. Lisa does that too. It takes her a little longer sometimes. It's mama's heart. But we learn very early how to manipulate situations to our advantage, and we don't ever stop, do we? We don't ever stop. Humility says, I will get involved and do whatever you need me to do. Why? Because you love Jesus, and you want to copy him. You want to emulate him. Humility is that gut-level honesty about who we are and why we do something. This is how our self-esteem is built. Not on the world. Not the world telling us we're the greatest. But God saying, go out there and serve each other. And you will be blessed because of it. To be okay with that and to start serving one another. We have to ask ourselves... How do I use what God has given me to serve other people? What skills do I have? What abilities do I have? What can I do that can serve somebody else? And that's how we should act. Now, we still have to do things for ourselves, right? I'm not saying ignore yourself completely. But I'm saying look for opportunities to serve. And you will be blessed beyond what you could imagine. Well, that's it for today. Except to say, when you get your burger today at the barbecue, you're supposed to turn around and give it to somebody else, right? Because we've got to serve each other, right? I know, I know. Bad joke. I had to go there. Well, why don't we stand as the worship team comes and let's pray.
Lord, I just I come before you and confess that I don't serve enough. I don't serve you enough. I don't serve other people enough. And I pray that, that we as a body of Christ come together and start looking out for each other. That we start looking out for the needs of this world and how you want us to treat other people, how you want us to, to show other people your love. That we could learn how to do that in this world. If we could learn that, Lord, you could, you could change so many lives. And you want to use us to change those lives. And I pray that we open our eyes to that. And Lord, I pray for our food, and I pray for, I, I thank you for those that have, have set up for our barbecue, and I pray that we just have a wonderful time, keep us safe as we're out there playing. But Lord, beyond the fellowship, beyond the getting to know one another, I pray that we learn how to serve one another within our own community, within our own household. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he bless you when you serve other people. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.